Hi, I'm Lynn Lee, and I'm the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Shell, and you are listening to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. 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 Hi, and welcome back to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. My name is Molly Jean de Dieu, and I'm the founder of Emotional Inclusion in the Workforce. We call on companies to bring mental health at the centerfold of their business agendas in a medicalized, confidential, and sustainable way. While emotional intelligence is all about the knowing of how to navigate our emotions and the emotions of the people we interact with, emotional inclusion is all about the doing the doing of providing tailored mental health care to each company while respecting their organizational DNA. This podcast is aimed to open up the conversation with global leaders, movers and shakers who are advocates for emotional inclusion and mental health in the workforce. And before we begin, to the listeners of the show, I would like to shout out that I have a brand new book on emotional inclusion coming out with Penguin Publishing House in April 2023. If you like my podcast, I really think that you're going to enjoy this book. It contains loads of pointers, practical strategies, research, and real-life stories to help you be more emotionally inclusive and enhance your mental well-being at work. This in turn will have such a transformative impact on your happiness and your overall productivity. So if that sounds of interest, you will be able to get your very own copy soon. It will be available as a paperback, as an ebook, but also as an audiobook, which I'm narrating. All links to order on both sides of the Atlantic will be found in the about section of the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. You will also find the book on all usual websites such as Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, the Book Depository, etc. And for your very own autographed copy, you will be able to order the book directly on my website at emotionalinclusion.com very soon. And for now, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the conversation today. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure to welcome Lynn Lee. Lynn is the first Asian female chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer to execute her job out of Asia for Shell. Now, I don't think Shell needs too much of an introduction, but just in case, Shell is a global group of energy and petrochemicals company with around 82,000 employees in more than 70 countries. Shell's purpose is to power progress together with more and cleaner energy solutions and serves around 32 million customers at 46,000 retail service stations daily. In terms of DEI, Shell has a bold goal to become one of the most diverse and inclusive organizations in the world. With 20 years and counting at Shell, Lynn champions the DEI priorities, focusing very much on accelerating the progress of gender balance in senior leadership and STEM roles, ethnicity, and local national representation. Lynn is passionate and committed to driving workplace inclusion of people with disabilities, LGBT+, and promoting care and destigmatizing mental illness. She represents Shell as a company which embraces a diverse global workforce to building a strong culture of inclusion, respect, and high performance at Shell. And if you'll tune in with us for the next 40 minutes or so, you will get to hear Lynn's extraordinary story of hardship at its best and how she survived it all with flying colors. Lynn's story is one of hope and inspiration, one that embodies emotional inclusion at its very essence. And so without any further ado, I'm so truly honored to be welcoming you, Lynn, on the podcast this morning. How have you been? Thank you, Molly. It's so nice to be speaking to you again. So nice to see you as always. And I can't wait to dive into what I know will be a very meaningful and powerful conversation. So let's dive in with the first question. So 20 years in an oil and gas company is 
to say the very least, a very steady and successful run, especially as a woman. What would you say, Lynn, has kept you at Shell for so long? Well, I have to say that the first would be the people. So I work with fantastic people all across the world. It's a group of really talented, supportive, curious group of people. Yeah. And I think, you know, I go to work every day knowing that I'm going to have a great time yeah, just because of people that I'm with. Yeah. Uh, 20 years fly past when you're having fun. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it used to be oil and gas. Yeah, but we're going through the industry with all the changes. In fact, we, we call ourselves an energy company. And it's that type of intellectual stimulation as well, you know, just in terms of having to grapple with all types of challenges, having the ability to actually personal life and professional life, going through different transitions in the organization, going through changes, you know, huge, big changes, dilemmas that we have to go through, but also getting the exposure to different businesses globally as well, you know, in my travels, living in other countries because of the company. So my past 20 years has been a blast in terms of, you know, professional, personal growth, as well as the support that I need uh, to get to where I am today. You know, it's so refreshing to hear this because today it's almost extraordinary to hear of people with such longevity in a company and with a track record like yours. So I assume that the ethos of the company is uh, very strong and that the pillars of diversity and inclusion are too, because you certainly presumably would not have stayed at Shell this long if they weren't. So I guess my next question to you is, what does inclusion mean to you and how vital would you say emotional inclusion is in the workforce? So I did ponder about this question that you asked me, Molly, when we had our chat earlier on around inclusion. And I think for me, it's really feeling that you are part of that ecosystem that, uh, as I mentioned, when I go to work, I know that I will be supported. So it's almost a feeling deep in your gut. And for me, that's inclusion. So what does that mean in terms of how it comes through for me? It is about knowing that I'll be valued for my contributions and that I'll be valued for the person that I am. It feels safe. Yeah, so when I go to work, I feel safe and being able to be myself. And when I'm myself, when I'm included, then I can thrive, right? I can bring my best to work. I can think without inhibitions. And that's very important for me, right? To be able to not have to filter my thoughts or to decide what it is I can or cannot do or say at work. Yeah, so that for me is inclusion and feeling like because of that as well, I can perform at my best. Yeah, so I think that is inclusion. And your question around what that means for emotional inclusion, I think is as I've started, then you can feel it in your gut almost, right? That emotionally yeah. you are sorted, if I can <laughs> use that word. Emotionally, you feel like you don't have butterflies in your tummy. I mean, we still all have good days and bad days, right? Yeah, but emotional inclusion for me would mean that no matter who I am that day, whether I'm having a good or bad time, that I can feel, you know, almost that the people that I work with have my back. Yeah, I love what you're saying, because in predominantly the larger companies today that do have the luxury to have diversity and inclusion platforms, again, they speak of all kinds of inclusion, but they negate to speak about emotional inclusion. And we've had this chat, as you said before, and I always like to say that we are humans at work. We're wired to feel as human beings. We emote before we even reason. And it's to me, almost ludicrous that we're having this conversation today, right, about emotional inclusion and the vital need for it within our organizations today. But yet here we are. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes people are afraid, you know, to talk about anything that could be considered emotion because it's considered as emotional, right? And if you're a female, I think that's even worse. Yeah. Anytime you show any types of emotion, it's almost like, you know, there she goes again, being emotional. Yeah. yeah so, so I think that word is almost kind of negated from organizations speak. But as you said, right, I think if we think about this and if we 
pause for a little moment, then, you know, most organizations, in fact, I would say that all organizations are made of people who work to make the organizations profitable, you know, people perform because they can be who they are. And this is fundamental. Yeah. So I think emotional inclusion is really then a state of mind. I think, you know, maybe then in terms of what in shall we call heart and minds, right? That emotional inclusion would be about you feeling, you know, from your heart that this is the right place to be at. Just like for me, I've been in the company for 20 years. In your mind as well that you know, because it translates to what would be your reality. Yeah. And what you know would be right. And that ability then to be at your best. Yeah. So I think that's where hearts and minds meet. That would be how I explain it around emotional inclusion. I love what you're saying. And there's also, I think, an interesting point to perhaps touch on is the differentiation between psychological safety and emotional inclusion. And psychological safety is really being in an arena that allows you to be safe. Well, emotional inclusion really is about the ability to, again, bring your full self at work with the emotionality component that we all have ingrained within all of us since the beginning of time. And our emotions effectively have always been our emotional radar that have allowed us to not just survive, but to thrive. So I love your answer. Lynn, you have such a poignant story that to me really epitomizes emotional inclusion at its fullest. And I was wondering if you would feel comfortable in sharing it with our audience because I know how much it will be a force of change for all to hear what you've been through, how you've navigated it all, and how also Shell has played such a vital role throughout your journey. Right. Well, thanks, Molly. And, you know, I'm always thinking when I'm asked to share my story, you know, why do people want to hear my story? Yeah, so I always start from that. Yeah. And I think as you say, and I know I believe in that as well, that, you know, all of us have a story. And when we share that, we connect people you know, because we all have at some fundamental level, we all need that connection, right? The ability to hear other people's stories so that it gives us a voice as well to tell our stories. And that's why I want to share. So it must be now more than 10 years, 10 to 15 years. And I've stopped counting and that's why I don't really remember, but between 10 to 15 years ago. So my dad, who has always been helping me with my daughters. So at that point in time, I had two young daughters. You know, one was about five, the other one was nine. And dad was always around helping them. So the girls still remember that fondly. So about more than 10 years ago, the family then found out that my dad had cancer. Yeah, and it was a pancreatic cancer. So we lost that very quickly and it was a real shock to me because I think for those of you who have lost a parent or both parents, you know how difficult it is, no matter what age, to lose a parent. So it was a real shock for me. I took time for me to process that dad had a really serious terminal illness and wouldn't be with us for a long time, right? And also then figuring out how to tell my girls their age what it meant, you know, that their granddad may not be around for a long time. And that was a real emotional roller coaster because dad had a successful surgery, but then he passed away quickly. So all within three months, right, dad went from having a nice vacation, coming back with gifts for everyone to passing away. That really hit me in the gut. And at the same time, I was actually considering very seriously to end my marriage at that point in time when I was considering to end it, it was about more than 18 years that I've been married to the same person and I've known my ex-husband for a bit more longer, right? So I think it was more than two decades of being together with someone and deciding to end it. So it's really difficult, but I think, you know, having lost my dad, it almost felt like it was the right thing to do as well, to make that firm decision and to follow my heart. And I don't say that lightly, right, in terms of following my heart. I've been carrying that around, you know, in terms of thinking whether I should stay in the marriage or leave the marriage. And again, 
I think when I say this, many of you would connect with this. And I had taken so long to end the marriage because I wanted to stay in the marriage to make it work. So I did everything. We went for therapy, you know, we went for holidays, <laughs> we fought, <laughs> we tried to make up, we tried to go our separate ways to give each other space, tried to be brave in front of our girls. I did so many things, but it was so painful that every time we tried to make it work, it got worse. And I stayed as well predominantly because I thought it was best to keep the family together. But I had my aha moment when I was away for work and I was walking along the river. Don't remember which river now, one of the rivers in Europe. And I had a moment of clarity. I think because I was at peace, I was alone. And I had been away from home for maybe a couple of weeks and I felt happy, you know, kind of at peace. And I paused. I still remember it so clearly, standing along the river and wondering like, why am I at peace right now, right? My life seemed to be a little bit of a mess, you know, from my own definition. And I was confused and probably trying to hide, you know, from all of this through work. You know, work was actually my sanctuary. And again, I think no surprise to a lot of you out there, right, that when you have trouble at home, you hide at work. When you have trouble at work, you hide at home, right? But the worst is when both is not well, right? So I think I was lucky that I could so-called hide at home, right? And that being my sanctuary. But I had that moment of clarity where I thought, wow, I'm at peace. wonder what this is all about. Yeah, and at that moment, it was so clear that I think I should just go ahead with my divorce. Yeah, and the other thing which stopped me was because I felt like, you know, the legal process would just somehow kill me. Yeah. So anyway, with that decision, you know, I told then my husband that we're going to go ahead with the divorce and went through the legal process. I think when your heart is set on something, when your mind is set on something, it's actually not that difficult. Yeah. It was still like two years of going through pain, but I think, you know, much better when you have a direction. So that was going on as well. And finally, through the divorce, I had custody of my two girls. Yeah, thankfully. And at the same point in time, work was really busy. Yeah, so I was doing well at work. I was uh, then the global HR manager for one part of business in Shell. And I really enjoyed that time because I had such good colleagues to work with. And again, all of this came to a head when I just felt that I had, you know, could I explain? And I'm still trying to explain this, but I had very high periods of activity yeah, where I was very productive. Yeah, but then there'll be days where, as I said, you know, all the emotional burden of losing my dad, going through then, you know, still the divorce and feeling like I had to be brave in front of my girls. Some days were really bad. Yeah, so I started feeling like I had highs and lows. And in any case, there was one day where I just could not get out of bed. Yeah. I can't explain how it is, right? When you have all the will in the world to get out of bed, like we all do every morning. But that day, even with all that will in the world, I just could not physically get out of bed. And I felt then something was wrong, right? <laughs> something was wrong. So anyway, to cut a long story short, I spoke to my sister and she said that don't think everything is okay. You should go see a doctor, right? You should see a psychiatrist. And she recommended me someone that I should see. I didn't think too long about this because I don't know, I didn't process it well. I just did, right? Because my sister said so and I trusted her, so I did. I think it was one of the best decisions that I made to do that. Yeah, because I was diagnosed with mood disorders, which means extreme mood swings. And not just mood swings, but you know, extreme in terms of being really productive. And I was like, you know, miss high performer, right? I could yeah, multitask. I could do many things as you would if you're a single parent going through a divorce versus times when I just explained where I just could not get out of it. Yeah, but that was the best thing that I did to see a psychiatrist and to seek help, yeah, proper specialist help. So that in a nutshell is my story. Such a poignant story, Lynn. And, you know, as the saying goes, when it rains, it pours. And I think it's the school of life for everyone. And we all have to learn to roll with the punches. But firstly, I'm sorry for what you went through. And at the same time, I'm looking at today and thinking, what an accomplished, strong, successful woman you are and how your story can showcase to so many how we can come out of hardship 
in a way that is successful and that is an example for others, which is why I think people ask you to share your story and also why I asked you to do so and you so kindly accepted to speak about it on this podcast because I think people, again, really need to hear that navigating or going through difficulty is not an end-all and be-all and that we can survive it all and we can also still be able to have a career. And I think what is amazing about your story is that Shell also, when you were going through all of this, allowed you to take the time out and get well and get better and welcomed you back with open arms. Can you share a little bit about how that went? Because again, I think that right then and there, Shell exemplifies what I believe every company should do. Well, let me just start by saying that when I went to see a psychiatrist that was more than 10 years ago, like I said, 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't the norm, right, for people to go see a psychologist, especially then from where I come from in Singapore, where it is a huge stigma. You don't go see a psychologist unless you are considered that crazy person, right? And that's how it's been said. And you, I still hear it today, right? Like, wow, she must be, or he must be really crazy, to have to go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So that was the type of environment which I was in, just in terms of where I live. And at a point in time as well, most companies do not have an overt mental health strategy, right? I, I'm very sure that in companies like Shell, we had doctors, you know, and health support staff, but it wasn't something where we promoted mental health. It wasn't spoken about. So I think, you know, for me, when I decided to speak openly about this to the people that I trusted, so obviously, again, there is something around speaking to people that you trust, right? So I have to clarify that I did not openly tell everybody, but to the groups of people that I worked with, whom I knew I could rely on. That's always really important as well, you know, in terms of seeking for support that you need to know who are the people who will support you because not everyone will, yeah? So for me, that was important. And I think I've stayed in Shell for 20 years because there's always been that company where one of the values is respect for people, yeah? And it came so naturally in terms of that respect, you know, for another human being, the respect for your colleague and the respect that this person wants to be the best. And so I did openly share, actually not with my line manager immediately, but I openly shared with the business team that I mentioned, Molly. Yeah, I shared with the leader because I had a good working relationship with him. And I shared with him the struggles that I was going through. He knew that I was really affected by that passing away. He knew that I was going through a divorce. And he really had my back because he told everyone else to back off. <laughs> yeah, and that... You know, Lynn is going through a lot of stuff, so please give her space. And I think that's so important, right, for a leader to be able to say that, to say, hey, give someone else space. And he literally did say that because I still laugh when I speak to other colleagues, right, when they go like, yeah, you know, during that time, we're told to back off, right, that to right. not be so demanding. So I think that's number one, having someone senior enough to be able to have your back, but also then for other people to know that, you are a human being who can be respected. So what happened after that was even more beautiful, right? Because then I said, well, I need some accommodations. Yeah, and I'm not asking for much. I never took time away from work, so I never took medical leave. And that was my choice because mm -hmm. I felt like I could be happier and more sane, you know, and to be able to work through all the personal challenges with colleagues around me. Yeah, so I did continue to work, but I asked for time that I needed to sort things out, right? To pick up my girls when I needed to, from all the activities, to be able to go see the doctor when I had to, or to go to the lawyer's office when I had to. And that actually adds up to a lot of time, right? That's not something where if you do not ask for accommodations at work that you could just walk out and do. Yeah, so again, there was no questions asked. You know, by then I had spoken to my line manager as well in about some of my, you know, personal staff. I did not share everything, right? Again, I think it's very important around picking what information you can share at what point in time. Right. So 
I think at that point in time for me, I would call it luck because it was just my intuition. I followed my intuition around what do I say to whom at what point in time, right? So obviously it took quite long for me to just slowly delay right? And give one piece of information at a time. So it wasn't like verbal diarrhea, if I can put it that way, to just tell everyone everything because it doesn't work that way. Right. But you know, that is being able to share one's story amidst of the eye of the storm that one can find themselves in. It's bold and it's courageous, even though you navigated with your intuition, which in so many ways is our sixth sense, especially as women. But yeah, it's bold and it's courageous. And I think that, as you said, it's important to do it only if you feel comfortable in opening up to a set person. But what would you suggest employees do when their leader effectively is not emotionally inclusive? How can they share their story if they're going through something incredibly painful? What would you advise they do? Yeah. Well, I get that question a lot. And the question is the fact that if you are struggling with mental health challenges, that most of the time you do not trust your line manager. So I get that question a lot. What if my line manager is the person who will stigmatize me? Yeah. I'll always say, think about what I've just said, right? That I did not come to my line manager first. And it wasn't because I did not trust him or that I think he would have like outed me or stigmatized me. Yeah, but I just immediately went to the person that I trusted most. Yeah, so that would be my advice. You know, who do you trust most? Think about work because you need support and accommodation. But if you pause and think and there's no one at work that you can share with, then I actually suggest that you think about still being able to unload, right? Talk about this. So again, if you go back to my story, I mean, the first time that I felt I couldn't get out of bed, the first time where I felt distressed and needed some help, I spoke to my sister. So again, do you have friends or, you know, family members that you really trust who will not judge you at that moment? Because many times at that moment, you don't want to go into solutions mode too much, right? You don't want to have to analyze what just went through, um, what you just went through, but you just need for someone to be there to listen, that's one, or to be there to support you, right? Be it going to a doctor, in my case, or something else. So I think, you know, always think about who you can trust most and go to that person. But if you, for whatever reason, you feel like even loved ones, family members, friends, you can't trust anyone because you're not ready, then I'll suggest going through in the company if you have an employee assistance program, call a professional who is trained to help. Yeah, that would be one way. And there are so many other helplines that are available. Yeah, just for someone to be able to listen to you because that's always the first phase, right? You have all these vented emotions that you're carrying, worries that you're carrying, and all of these add to an emotional burden. Yeah, and that burden is heavy. Yeah, it's heavy unless you share it, unless someone is able to give you feedback. Yeah, and that's actually what's needed in major crises like that in terms of dealing with mental health challenges. A hundred percent. And that's why at Emotional Inclusion, we really promote and work with companies and allow them to have a mental health structure where they have an internal, an in-house therapist so that they can safely go to this person and get the medical emotional care they need in order to basically navigate their workload and their lives because our personal and work lives, as we know, are so intertwined. Lynn, you once said, and I quote you, being mentally ill doesn't mean you can't be successful. Many of us go through stress and live with depression and anxiety and think it's normal. We're just told to just get through it. But there's no such thing as just getting through it. It all just gets worse unless you get attention. So and clearly here, company leadership plays such an important role in creating an environment where employees have the chance to take time off to care for themselves and where worker well-being is really emphasized. And so what do you think, what would be the most important issues you think that leaders will need to tackle, say, 
in the next five years when it comes to mental health at work? Do you have a few pointers for us? Yeah, well, I'll speak from my own experience here because I don't claim to be an expert in this, but I'm a great advocate of mental health. So a few things, as I mentioned, when I spoke to my colleague and my line manager and my senior leader about this more than a decade ago, it was not something that was spoken about. So I think from now to the next five years, what leaders need to understand is that it is now a topic which is of extreme importance. And I think we've all experienced that and lived through that because of the pandemic, that mental health challenges, mental wellness, mental illness is now top of priority, right? So this is not going to go away because many of us are living through that. Let me just go back and explain a little bit, right? This is a whole spectrum of well-being to mental ill health. And for those of us who have been lucky enough and fortunate enough to not ever have experienced mental ill health, there will be still some periods because of life stages, things that you're going through in life that may throw you off, right? Where you may have that short period of time where you actually would experience mental ill health. And there's help and support you know, that can be given, right? And then there are some of us who are actually on the other extreme where you may have more chronic long-term uh, mental health condition, just like mine, you know, in terms of mood disorders, where you need long-term care. Right. And this is almost like any other medical care that is required. And this is what organizations need to consider as well, that this is not about someone who cannot get out of bed, as I said, right? And it's not that one time. This is about people who need medical help, who need medical support, long-term care. It must be seen as any other type of health issues yeah, that you support. So I think, you know, going forward, that is what most companies and most leaders would have to grapple with and to be competent about, to start to be aware that there's this whole spectrum that we need to all lean in to try to understand more. So I would say just really from my experience and to say lastly as well, right, as I've said, you could be fortunate enough to not ever have experienced mental ill health till now. Yeah, but one in four of us would have experienced this either personally or to be affected by this and impacted by this because of family members around us or loved ones. Yeah. So at any point in time, you could be hit with this, right? Short term or long term. Mm -hmm. But there are also people like myself who live with mental ill health, which can be managed. Yeah. So Molly, the person that you see today who is upbeat, you know, who is thriving, is also someone who listens to her doctor in terms of managing her health. Yeah, and I think someone with uh, health conditions, mental ill health conditions, can also be well. So I think it's really grappling with this, you know, looking at this in totality and to not throw terms around, yeah, to not say that, hey, just get out of your depression. I mean, why would anyone want to be in depression if they can just get out of it, right? If they exactly. can just write through it. Nobody would want to be in that position. So I think, you know, sometimes when we're ready to tell someone to, hey, do this, do that, pause and think about what I've just said, that there is a lot around the spectrum that leaders would have to grapple with. So I think that's what we are faced with from now till going forward the next five years, trying to really understand this entire spectrum. A hundred percent. And I love everything that you're saying. And for companies to truly, as you say, put mental health at the centerfold of their agendas and just taking on what you just mentioned, really understanding the full scope of our employees' humanity, both the physical and the mental, and really looking at insurances too, or allocated budget to care for our employees' mental welfare because as we know, mind and body are so interconnected. Molly, I'll just like share something else. Sure. Uh, just that, you know, perhaps some tips and tools, ideas for leaders as well, because everything that I've just said sounds completely complex, right? Insurmountable. So in Shell, for example, we look at this from four categories. Yeah. So as I've said, you could be someone who is fortunate enough, you know, very well, thriving, never experienced this. So it's hard actually, you know, if you do not have the lived experience to understand what this is all about, right? 
So we have what we call self-care toolkit in Shell, where it's self-paced learning, where it is about, you know, modules around resilience, where you take care of yourself, right? And we even have, I think most multinational companies have that, most organizations, well-being allowance, where you can use that bit of allowance. I like that one. You have to do anything that you want, right? To keep yourself well. Right. Self-care. Yeah, it's much more in terms of impacting yourself and helping to take care of yourself and keep yourself well. That's number one. I think the second one is around capability building, you know, for people who want to be allies, who want to be ambassadors, to be able to have some resources where you can actually notice people who may need help and who may not have anyone to go to, as we've mentioned before. Right. So these are um, mental health ambassadors that we have in Shell. And again, toolkits around what to notice and what to do. Right. Simple things. It's much more in terms of support rather than professional help. Yeah. So that's the second layer of defense, as I call it. And the third one is actually what I've mentioned as well. Right. Employee assistance services. Uh, so much more professional help, external help where you can call and it's confidential. And I touched upon this much earlier on that you share with people that you trust and you do that because you want to keep your information confidential. Yeah, you're touching on a really important point. You want to keep that information confidential. Yes. Absolutely. And do you believe that mental health ambassadors, at least at Shell, are keeping the information they're given confidential? Yeah. Or have you had issues with the spills? I mean, again, you know, all of these are always caveated with the fact that it has to be confidential. Right. Right. And mental health ambassadors, their role is actually to signal and point. Yeah. So it's almost like signposting. If I notice someone is having a bad day, so it could start with something simple like this, right? You just notice that someone looks different over a period of time. And the ambassador's job is really sometimes to just go and ask if the person is okay, right? I notice that you're not well, or I notice that you've been sick a lot. Is there anything that I can help with, right? And it is not to start to share about what this person is going through, but to signpost that there is the doctor that you could see. So in a company like Shell, we still have our medical doctors who are in the company, or it could be signposts to say you may want to reach out to employee assistance services. So it's really to do that and not to start to get in a conversation with your colleague about what it is that you're troubled with and try to be the mental health expert. Yeah. So I hope that clarifies. Right. I think it is such an important dissociation that you just made right there, because again, I think unless one is equipped with a psychology degree, and I say it often, I kind of feel like a broken record at this stage, but truth be told, we're not fit to oversee the emotional realm of anyone for that matter, yeah. unless we're medically trained. So I'm glad you made that dissociation. So bouncing on this, Lynn, for you, what would the organization of the future look like? For me, again, that's what I hope it will be. <laughs> so I think companies that are probably more emotionally connected, as we've talked a lot about emotional inclusion, the word emotional is not a bad word, right? So I think it's about being more human-centric, talking about performance from a human-centered point of view, right? And the question that companies have to ask is, how can I get the best from my employees? and how they can perform at their best, right? And the question that I'm always asked is like, why do we talk about things like mental health in the organization? Isn't it really private? Isn't it very confidential? That's a good point. Right. Why do companies care to do that? It comes back again to the fact that if it's around performance that's human-centered, you want your staff, employees, your colleagues to be at their best, right? So I think that's what the organization of the future should and must consider, the human-centered approach. I think as well, companies taking this seriously and not trying to, I'm searching for my words, yeah, but you know, we talk about this from the start around the stigma of mental ill health. Yeah. So to not really try to downplay the emotional burden that people carry when they're not well and the broken record in their minds, right? Thinking, should I say, should I not say? What's the consequence if I do? Will I be penalized? Yeah, will I be told that I'm not a high performer? Will I be out of a job? Yeah, all these things that keeps people from actually talking about it 
And if you carry that burden, you definitely will get down, you know, into a downward spiral where you'll not do well at work. Yeah. So I think that's the other thing to not minimize the impact that it has on people and the toll that it has in terms of trying to carry that burden and to still try to do work. Yeah. That's the second thing. I think that that thing is that for companies and what we need to do to thrive, that we need to consider, even for small companies, I also get this a lot, Molly, you know, where people come to me to say, yeah, of course, you work in Shell, right? You have all the resources in the world. But, you know, the company that I work for, the company that I've started is a small company. We can't afford such things. You don't have to start with too much, right? I think start with people understanding what this is all about. There are so many external free resources on what mental health is. I think just creating awareness around this, inviting people who are ready to talk about this without even you spending you know, any bit of money is important. So I think one thing to help and support is the first. And also, like I said, if the company doesn't have employee assistance services, direct your staff and employees to SOS, for example, to helplines which are available. So those are all things that companies can explore. And I think it is a must. So these would be the three points that I'll say would be <laughs> the company of the future. They're all so valid and so direly needed. So thank you for sharing those and just bouncing back on what you were saying with regards to smaller companies when it comes to the feedback you get from small, medium enterprises stating, ah, well, we don't have the same resources. I actually like to mention to them, well, if COVID has taught us anything is that one, we don't have to travel as much. And so that allocated budget that was, for example, going towards traveling can go towards your mental health and the benefits you'll reap will be a hundred times fold. And there are always ways, as you said, putting mental health really at the centerfold of our business organization will only allow our companies to blossom and perform overall. So I love your three points. Lynn, I'm time conscious, but I want to fit in a few more questions. What do you practice for your own mental well-being? Uh, well, I have this big smile on my face, Molly, because I look back on myself and I've come so far. And this sounds really strange to say, but I'm so thankful for everything that's happened to me because it's taught me to be so much more self-aware, so much more compassionate for myself, right? To not judge myself as well. So what have I done? It's been a huge and long journey. So I think for all of you out there, whatever stage that you're at, where you go like, why am I not moving? Why am I not being a better person that I promised myself? It takes time, right? And sometimes you go back and forth. So how do I keep well? I still remember, again, probably more than 10 years ago, where I started journaling and I drew this Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Social, right? right, right, right. <laughs> and so anyway, I was thinking, well, I need to take care of myself physically. I need to take care of myself emotionally. I need to take care of myself spiritually. Yeah, that's what I remembered. So physically, I committed myself to getting fit physically and really taking exercise very seriously. You know, fast forward to where I am today. I would feel so uncomfortable if I do not go to the gym or if I'm not practicing gyrotonic, pilates or walking at least four to five times a day. So out of that week, if I do not exercise, I feel like I've not eaten. Yeah, so it's become that habit and it's kept me well, right? Because I think for me, with my condition around mood disorders, it is very important what the physical exercise does, right? It gives you all this good hormones, good bites. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing, you know, physical health. Emotional health, it would be to practice, as I said, being kind and compassionate to myself. I think all of these as well, right? When we talk about stigma, we talk about feeling not safe. A lot of it starts with us, right? Because even before anyone judges you, you judge yourself, right? You filter out everything that's not good. And we as individuals would be the first to judge, to say, this is not the person that I am. I don't want to be that person. So I think, you know, the emotional practice that I've done would really be around centering 
And I'm not talking about meditation because I've never really got into that, but just around breathing, centering, grounding, and kind of really noticing where you are, you know, in your head. I started talking about heart to head, right? So I think this is much more around your head to heart, just noticing and pausing. And I don't know who said this to me, right? But I repeat this all the time now. It is fine to feel what you feel because we're all human beings. So it could be angry, it could be upset, you know, it could be sad, whatever that is. But what do you do about that feeling is what I've been practicing. Yeah. And then lastly, spiritual, and it's different from religion. Yeah. So it is about spirituality, whatever that is, right? Connecting with the universe, connecting with the God that you believe and feeling like you're not alone. Yeah, so I've been practicing this and obviously doing a lot of work in the three areas. So what I'm going to say to summarize this is that it is important. It is important. Again, for people who are well, who are fortunate enough, right? Because it builds resilience. And then for people who are just like me, chronic mental health challenges is even more important, right? Because these are basically your lifelines, your toolkits for keeping yourself as fit and ready as possible, right? To kind of fight the world, if I call it. A hundred percent. And it takes work, right? To practice well-being, to take the time out and to prioritize ourselves. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just all about work within our day jobs, which we often sort of focus on, right? It's uh, the kids or the dog or the house or whatever, or the husband or ex-husband, whatever, um, and, uh, and work. And then we so often leave ourselves out, which can wind up being so dangerous. You also talk about empathy a lot, Lynn, and in that it should be the new norm. And I so agree with that. And it should definitely be the norm as well at work. So basically, you at Shell roll out a lot of campaigns in order to promote that. And a few years ago, you had this campaign that you rolled out called I'm Not Okay, in a way of everyone who cared to share their story could to create a ripple effect of normalization, if you will, and destigmatization in and around what it means to be human at work. Could you share just very briefly with us the success that you've had with that campaign and with maybe a few others that you've rolled out recently that you care to share? Mm-hmm. Well, let me qualify by saying that I did not roll that out there. Yeah, so this was my colleagues from Shell Health, as I mentioned. And the I'm Not Okay campaign, I think it's about five or six years now. And it was really started to destigmatize that. That was its main aim, to be able to openly, as a company, be able to advocate that it is fine, that it's okay to not be okay. And again, you can imagine, pre-pandemic, this all felt really strange. So I remember when we started talking about this at leadership, I was thinking, and I'll be the first to admit, I was thinking like, why would you want to have a campaign like this, right? Call I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it felt so negative, right? Don't people want to be okay? Yeah, so when you have one that says I'm not okay, I think that was exactly it, right? To call out things and feelings which sit so uncomfortably with individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there were many platforms. I think more importantly, it was actually to advocate and to provide toolkits, as I mentioned, on self-care where people can without bridging any type of confidentiality, be able to take care of themselves. But then we also had a wall, yeah, a virtual wall where people could park their stories. All these with confidentiality, right? And with disclosure agreements from people who do want to share their stories, yeah, that this is actually kept in the company, kept securely and with their permission, where their stories are shared with staff, right? And this is really to just give hope to others. Just like what you and I are talking about now, right? I am happy to share my story because if it touches one person who is listening to this and it gives them hope or it gives them courage around what it is that they need to do for themselves, I will feel so much better. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? It really is. It's leaving that trail of change within a realm like emotional inclusion and well-being because it's so direly needed still. That's right. So it's just making it okay to talk about this because the first 
thing that's the most difficult, as we've said throughout this whole podcast, is having the ability to talk about this. This is the most important, right? This is the start to recovery, the start to being better, the start to gaining back yourself, uh, the ability to talk about it. Gosh, you're speaking my language, Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) You really are. It's been such an amazing conversation. And I know how you and I go. We could speak for hours, but I know you have a full day ahead. And I just wanted to wrap this podcast up with a few questions. So a quick, rapid sort of Q&A so that our audience gets to know you a little bit better and just get to have a sort of a window on the amazing person that you are. So for the first question, and I purposefully didn't send these to you because it has to be kept real. So, but don't worry, they're they're (laughs) not not off the top question. Okay, so here we go. So for you, Lynn, what is the quality or the top quality of an emotionally inclusive leader? Empathy. What is your most prized quality in an individual? Someone who listens. What makes you emotionally balanced? My exercise, my adventures. What is your biggest dream? My biggest dream? To do something outstanding in this space of equity and inclusion. What is your biggest fear? Of failing. What is your number one reason to wake up every day? Oh, to have podcasts like this, to be speaking to you, Molly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lynn, you're the best. What would you like to change about yourself? Oh, well, I'm actually quite happy with myself. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) Were you given the chance, what would you redo? Well, I would start this journey a lot younger in my life because I've seen and reaped the benefits of the person that I am. Yeah, so that would be the one thing that would change to start earlier on. That's beautiful. What is the first word that pops in your head when you think of emotional inclusion? Positive. That was the first word that came to my mind. What is your wish for the world of mental health? My wish would be openness and compassion. Thank you so much, Lynn. It's been such an immense pleasure speaking with you this morning. And I have so much respect, appreciation for you and for all that you do. And the world definitely needs more people like you. And so thank you once again for coming on the podcast early this morning. Thank you, Molly. It was a pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation today. We trust you enjoyed it. And if you have a chance, please rate and review, hit subscribe to receive new episodes and pass it along to a friend. And if you wish to know more on the Emotional Inclusion program we offer to companies, please visit EmotionalInclusion.com. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, be bold and be brave.